Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Hear these words. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them and saying farewell, he left for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given the believers much encouragement, he came to Greece, where he stayed for three months. He was about to set sail for Syria when a plot was made against him by the Jews, and so he decided to return through Macedonia. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. It might seem an odd place to uh, stop the reading, but the rest of it's really just the names of people he traveled with, and well, they're hard to say. All right, there's the secret is out, I guess, this morning. But So chapter 20 of the book of Acts, it takes place in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, and by now, we can really start to see the development uh, uh, for Paul's plan in ministry. He goes to a place. He preaches the gospel. Eventually, he's going to circle back around to that place. And, you know, a couple of churches are going to get some letters. What this brings us to is the beginning of doctrine. Simply put, doctrine is the set of beliefs that is held and taught by the church. And what we're going to see today is that being clear about our doctrine not only gives us a tangible guide against idolatry, but clear doctrine also helps us better understand how to live out the faith. So sometimes when I share part of my faith story, I'll say that one of my greatest teachers during the early days of me trying to figure out the faith uh, was a guy by the name of Christopher Hitchens. If you're searching the database of your mind, trying to place the name Christopher Hitchens in the great list of theologians, you're not going to find it. The now late Christopher Hitchens was a self-proclaimed anti-theist who after 9-11 had had enough with all this religious nonsense, and he made it his life's mission to go around and argue for the contents of his aptly named book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now, to be fair, he was going to reason against all religions, Uh, yeah, and Christianity would be on that list. But what made him so successful was that he is extremely intelligent and very articulate. And so I became fascinated by his debates, his ability to tear down the arguments of the Christian scholars, one of the better ones, in my opinion, uh, in particular, who said something like, you know, you can't prepare for a debate with Christopher. You've either spent a lifetime preparing or you're not ready. Reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who demands from you an account for the hope that you have regarding your faith in Jesus. And it took someone like Hitchens to draw that out for me. I knew I didn't believe anything he was saying, but I didn't know why. God is not great. Obviously, I'm on the other side of that one, and I'm pretty sure you are too, but why? And as Hitchens would explain how you could reach the same type of morality and ethics and contentment as the one offered in religion, and hey, probably better because you don't have to carry around all that baggage from the religious groups, 
I knew there had to be a counterpoint to the argument besides the Christian platitudes of, well, you know, just be nice and go to church. I just didn't know what that was. So I call him one of my greatest teachers in the early days of, of my faith journey because with all of his sound reason and his logic, but how religion poisoned everything, it didn't do anything but drive me deeper into the faith. I knew God was great. I knew he was good and righteous. I knew God was all-powerful and that he would fight for each and every one of us to be saved from the real poison of evil. But I didn't know how to articulate that. I didn't know how to give uh, a reason for the hope that I have that God really is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. <clears throat> This is why Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy. He warns him, the time is coming. People will not put up with sound doctrine. But in having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. They will turn away from listening to the truth. They will wander away to myths. So the weight and the impact of sound doctrine is as vital today as it was when Paul was encouraging the disciples to stand firm in the faith. Persuasions against the faith, they, they really haven't changed content all that much since the day of Paul, the disciples, Jesus. But some people have gotten really, really good at articulating them. And so if we don't know why we believe what we believe. Then as our lives get infiltrated, eventually destroyed, every time someone presents a good argument or asks a hard question or tries to say that our testimonies of God's grace are illegitimate. And in fact, guys like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, they might be right. There's absolutely zero reason to be Christian at all unless it's true. And if it's true, if Christ really is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, if the God of heavens really does command angels, armies, and if God has a mighty hand of justice that cannot be swayed by the evil indifference of this world, then Christ and his church really are worth giving up everything we have and everything we are. You might have noticed Acts uh, 20. It starts by saying, after the uproar had ceased. So it appears we've walked into the middle of something. Let's back up. Let's get some context. So if we back up chapter 19, we see that Paul has done what he does best. He goes into a place, he's faithful to the gospel, people believe it, and it starts a riot. The truth of Christ always disrupts the darkness. The lie that we have been sold is that the darkness won't fight back. Evil always fights back. Satan never goes quietly. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have a confidence that the same God who effortlessly rebukes the winds and the waves, 
from overtaking the very life and faith of his disciples is the same God who still fights on our behalf today because we too are his disciples. This is why it is vital that you and I know on the foundation of which our faith is built. Because the Bible doesn't say if the storms come. It says when the storms come. When the storms come, is your faith built on the sinking sand or is it built upon Jesus Christ as the rock of our salvation? The rock. Okay, great. You can participate at any time during the service. It's okay. Notice that the rest of verse 1, it says, you know, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. After encouraging them, he says farewell, and he leaves for Macedonia. And that word encouragement, it's slightly different than when we saw it with Barnabas a couple weeks ago. So on top of the idea of comfort, this encouragement, it carries with it this idea of exhortation and instruction. It's the beginning of what we now call doctrine. Paul gives them some words of assurance, but he also reminds them of the hope that they have. But what disciples is Paul talking to exactly? I mean, he's not talking to Peter, James, and John. He's not even talking to Timothy here. Well, uh, verse 1, chapter 19, it says that Paul came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And when they meet, there's this big theological discussion that takes place about baptism. Okay, so basically, these disciples, they were baptized under the authority of John's baptism by water, and they had not yet gotten word that John's prophecy had been fulfilled, that the one who is coming will baptize by water and the Spirit, he has come. And because he has been crucified and risen from the dead, that the Holy Spirit is now being poured out upon all flesh. And that's why when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. The power and the weight of holy baptism takes place only under the authority of the triune God. For there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. There is no other name that is worthy of all of our worship, our honor, and our praise. And now, to be fair to these disciples, they are obviously following Christ to the best extent that they know how. Again, word hasn't gotten around. Well, how do you know they're following Christ to the best extent then, preacher? Well, it doesn't take much convincing from Paul for them to see that they don't have uh, the last piece of the puzzle. Like, they don't argue with him about it at all. He comes, oh, oh, that's happened? Okay, good, great, let's go. And so then they, they receive the message, they get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit. You might be thinking, okay, well, that's true. Then, you know, what difference does this make practically? I'm glad you asked. The weight of this moment is underlined by the fact that it is the only time that we see a rebaptism take place in the entire New Testament. Why? What is Paul doing? Well, he's teaching us the purpose and the function of doctrine. He's taking a belief that we hold about the faith and he's showing us what it looks like to live that out. The only time rebaptism is necessary is if you have not been baptized under the authority of the triune God. 
Like, I don't understand the argument for rebaptism on the grounds that people were baptized on the wrong end of their salvation, the wrong side of their salvation. I just don't know what that means, given what we understand about how God works in salvation. We come to God only by faith alone, through grace alone, and it is God who gives the gift of faith. And the Holy Spirit is not only the power drawing us back to God before we are able or acknowledge or understand Jesus as Lord, Holy Spirit is also the gift we receive that transforms our hearts and our minds. And all of this is made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice here that like, Paul's main sticking point with these disciples, it isn't about their belief in Jesus. It's about if they have received the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Okay, so stick with me here. If, you, if, I, if I lost you, check back in with me real quick. I don't want to get an email. The third juggernaut in Methodism after John and Charles Wesley is a man named John Fletcher. And Fletcher's the guy that just opened my eyes to, to all of this. It's fascinating. And Fletcher's going to help us explain it in this way. He says, regeneration is not complete until the believer is filled with the love of God. And that's the process we're living out in sanctification. Fletcher goes on to say, the rite of water baptism without the grace of spirit baptism results in external Christianity rather than true spiritual regeneration. So if we come to the baptismal waters without the graces of God that were at work in us before we saw Christ, that are at work opening our eyes to Christ, and those graces that continue to renew our hearts and our minds in the knowledge and love of Christ Jesus, then we have missed a very important part of our baptism, the outpouring and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Only coming to the waters of baptism because you've said yes to Jesus is to praise God in one promise and ignore him in another. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. You're about to get that email because acknowledging Christ is a good thing. And in fact, it's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. It is. It is good. It is right. It is necessary. Don't hear me take that away to any degree. But as glorious and as necessary as our acknowledgement of Christ is, glorious and necessary, as glorious and necessary as our acknowledgement of Christ is, it's only the beginning. The joy-filled work of the Christian life to fulfill the purpose that God has placed in our lives, it comes through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's common for us today to think that the Holy Spirit does not manifest itself the same way that it did in the first century. We believe that there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that's really more of an intellectual belief than it is a practical reality in our lives. And so our problem just may be that we think receiving the Holy Spirit means that we are saved and we're going to heaven and so we can just sit back and wait for the glorious day of the Lord to return. But that is a shallow belief 
about the transformative work and purpose of the Holy Spirit. There is a transformational aspect of our faith that does not wait until eternity to make us new, but that literally is beginning our transformation here and now and continuing to work on us until eternity and then through eternity. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is meant to be a reality in our lives from the moment of our baptism so that you and I can get on with running the race with perseverance. And despite all adversity, turmoil, and pain, heartache that comes through living in a broken world, that we might have the power to finish strong with the assurance that on that final day, we will hear those glorious words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you can say amen at any time you feel the Spirit lifting your soul to the heavens. No one? Okay, I'm going to keep preaching until it happens. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul encourages his young apprentice to train yourself in godliness. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, but put these things into practice. And then Paul reminds him to pay close attention to yourself and your doctrine. Continue in these things, for in doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. So if you and I want to go stronger in our faiths, see God at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us, we must press in to the gifts that God has given us for ministry that he's going to reveal through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You might be thinking, well, you know, well, that's great and all, but I don't have any gifts for ministry and, you know, I'm no pastor, church leader. I don't exactly feel qualified to do ministry. And to that, I lovingly make this face. No, that's my disappointed face, right? What do you mean you have no gifts? What do you mean you don't feel qualified for ministry? Your qualifications come from Christ and your gifts come from the Holy Spirit. And so maybe you're right. Maybe your gift has nothing to do with something inside the church. Maybe your gift has something to do with something outside the church. Well, I have it on good authority that God does not want to stay inside these walls. And be encouraged, Christian. God does not call the equipped. God equips the called. Through your baptism, you have been called. You are part of the priesthood of believers. You are part of God's plan to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. But to do that effectively for the kingdom of God, we must take the gifts that God has given us, revealed by the Holy Spirit. We must train ourselves in godliness, which is done by not neglecting our gifts, but by identifying them, learning how to put them into practice. You think I went to seminary because I enjoy paying people thousands of dollars to torture me academically? No. Train up a gift given by the Holy Spirit. You thought I thought that I would ever be up here doing this? No. God apparently had other plans 
And we know how to identify gifts, training, dedication, praise people for it. Every aspect of our lives. Then we come into the church and we act oblivious to the concept. What are you talking about? Here's what I mean. We would all agree, would we not? And I'm not really gonna debate you here. We would all agree Michael Jordan was given a gift to play basketball like anyone, unlike anyone else, okay? There's no question about who's number one, stop it. (laughs) But did you know that Michael Jordan did not make his high school basketball team? You knew that, right? Someone tried to assess his gift according to some silly little list instead of walking alongside the young athlete, training him up. And they in, his talent was incorrectly judged as insufficient and ineffective. But then Jordan eventually got that guidance that he needed to develop his gift. And he became unstoppable. Oh yeah, that, and he trained relentlessly. So maybe, just, just maybe, Paul continually uses the illustration of athletics in his letters because living out the Christian life takes the same kind of discipline and development. Well, that sounds like a lot of work there, preacher. Maybe, just maybe. But do tell me, what exactly do you plan to do with your life, Christian? Like towards what goal exactly do you intend to spend your energy and your time? I'm listening. But here's why we're so scared of it. I'm gonna say the quiet part out loud so you don't have to. We're scared that if we go out there, we get our faiths tested a little bit, that we are gonna be exposed as failures or imposters or hypocrites. We're scared that our insecurities will be exposed and we don't wanna risk having our faiths torn down because if that happens, we're not quite sure how they're ever gonna be built back up. But insulating ourselves inside the church doesn't protect the faith that we have. It cripples it. We are indwelt not with a spirit of cowardice or timidity, but one of power, love, and discipline. Precisely because God has commissioned us to be his hands and his feet in this world. The power of God becomes most evident when we see that the storms cannot overtake us. The light of Christ shines most brightly from inside the grave. And the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit manifests itself most magnificently when sound doctrine is confronted by the claims of a counterfeit gospel because the truth of God's Grace never changes. He is always pursuing you, and he is more powerful than anything that stands in the way. And God will always make you whole. So if I lost you somewhere along the way this morning, the secret to the sermon is this. I haven't done anything but stack up scriptures in a way that helps us hopefully to see All of them as a reality that's supposed to inform how we live. The doctrines of the Christian faith, they weren't invented by the early church 
as a good guide to morality and ethics, but they were an articulation of a reality about who God is and what God is doing throughout salvation. Doctrine isn't there to be learned as some sort of intellectual exercise. It is there to help us learn how to express the grace of God as we interact in the world because our lives might be the only Bible that people ever read. And so just as much as we wanna continually ask each other, do you know what you believe? We wanna continually encouraging one another to believe what you know. For as people look upon the lives of those who call themselves Christians, what are they gonna know about Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have poured out your spirit upon each and every one of us. Continue to fan the flames of your glory in our hearts. Make it be for us a fire shut up in our bones that, oh, may we grow weary of holding it in and cannot. Give us the strength, the boldness, the courage to go out in your name so that all may know that salvation has come and his name is Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.